Car accidents are never a pleasant experience, especially when they're your fault. There was this time when I was a teenager and I was fairly new at driving and it'd be safe to say that I suffered from the mentality that some young men often do, the invincibility mentality. I loved getting behind the wheel of my dad's Toyota Echo, uh, a gutless four-cylinder engine, manual transmission. And I think I often imagined myself as a Formula One race car driver while I was climbing the gearbox from one gear to the next. Well, one night I was on my way home and it was raining particularly hard and it certainly didn't help that the tires were bald. Uh, anyhow, as I, as I came around a corner, I realized that the light had turned red and that I'd have to begin to slow down. I began to apply the brakes, but I quickly realized I didn't have any traction. I began hydroplaning, and the next thing I knew, I slammed into the car in front of me. Now, praise God, no one was injured but in that moment, a wave of emotion swept over me. I immediately felt guilt and shame. I was going too fast. I was being reckless. And more than anything, I feared the reality that I had just crashed my parents' family vehicle. I began panicking, imagining my dad's wrathful response when he found out about my foolish behavior. I began hearing his voice and playing it in my head. How could you be so irresponsible? What were you thinking? You're finished. You're going to have to pay for this. And to be honest, my dad would have had every reason to respond in this way. My behavior had resulted in the destruction of his property and jeopardized the safety of others on the road. And I remember calling him on the phone, waiting for his voice of imminent judgment. And to my disbelief, I hear him say, are you all right? It's going to be okay. Where are you? I'm on my way, son. I love you. In the place of wrath, I received grace. When I deserved judgment, I was greeted with love. Though I was worthy of a harsh rebuke, I was shown kindness. And this is precisely the reality that we come to grips with in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, isn't it? By nature, we were children of wrath, gripped by the passions of sin, following in the footsteps of the sons of disobedience, Paul says. We deserved wrath, as we see in those first three verses of chapter 2. The just verdict for us was one of condemnation. But what are we confronted with in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What we find is that in the place of wrath, we experience God's overwhelming grace and mercy because of Christ Jesus. Though God would have had every right to leave us in a state of ruined nature, he chose before the foundation of the world to restore us to himself, to unite us to Christ, and to give us a new nature. This is the gospel of God that we are presented with in this text. Because of God's love and tender mercy, 
Christ Jesus purchased us with his blood, though we deserved eternal wrath and condemnation. So as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 this evening, I want for us to see this reality, to embrace it, to savor its sweetness. Because of God's great love and tender mercy, we are saved by grace and united to Christ. And this is the main point that I want you to take away from these three verses. Because of God's great love and tender mercy, we are saved by grace and united to Christ. We're going to look at this reality in two parts this evening. Firstly, God's great love and mercy. And secondly, our union with Christ. Uh, Look with me in your Bibles at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This verse is particularly startling given its context. It's like the fire alarm or the smoke detector just went off. It startles us. And this is because what we find in the first three verses right before this is a bleak picture of human nature apart from God's intervening work of salvation. Right? Paul reminds us in verses 1 through 3 about the reality of our fallen condition, about who we were apart from the grace of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature we were children of wrath. This is incredibly humbling. And note that that the Apostle Paul, he is not saying that we were just partially corrupted. He doesn't say that our human nature was only moderately tainted by sin. No, he stresses the point that we were dead, morally bankrupt, morally unable to turn from sin in and of ourselves. This describes the doctrine commonly known as total depravity. When Adam and Eve transgressed the law of God and ate of the forbidden fruit, all of humanity was plunged into that estate of sin and misery. And that's the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I find it helpful on this point. The result of Adam and Eve's sin was separation from God. God set forth his law and he instructed that if Adam and Eve transgressed the commands of God, they would surely die. And this is precisely what happened, is it not? They died a spiritual death. And all of mankind was plunged into that estate of death, that estate of sin and misery. This is the nature of which Paul speaks. In Adam, we were children of wrath. Our fallen nature was just not partially corrupted, but wholly corrupted. So much so that we needed New life breathed into us. And this is the human predicament. This is precisely the situation into which God intervenes in his great love for us. Did did God leave Adam and Eve in that estate of sin and misery? Does God leave us in our estate of sin and misery? Well, let's look at our text and discover the abounding grace and love of God the Father shown towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
Paul has just finished describing our hopeless estate. But the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Apostle and he moves us from a state of hopelessness to a perfect hope. But God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes of these words, quote, But God. These two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole gospel. End quote. Some of you may be familiar with uh, cold shower therapy. The idea is you wake up in the morning, you're groggy, sleepy, unable to function, and you jump into a cold shower to shock your system into a state of heightened awareness. I confess I've, I've tried it a few times, and let's just say that a cold shower first thing in the morning really gives you a better sense of the phrase, a rude awakening. But this is precisely the kind of awakening that Paul bids us to see in verse 4. It's a shock to the system. It's a wake-up call. A stunning truth that shakes us from our slumber. It's the captivating reality that God does not leave us perpetually to suffer in that state of sin and misery. It's the hope of the gospel that God restores ruined sinners to himself. This is what we find in verse 4. The conjunction there, the conjunction but, is the hinge point of the gospel. God interposes himself into the course of human history by accomplishing his plan of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Though we deserved eternal condemnation, we receive everlasting life if you are in Jesus. We were enemies of God and our nature was hostile towards him, but God. We were alienated from him, separated from his love, but God. Brothers and sisters, do not miss the gravity of this statement in verse 4. This is the gospel in a nutshell. And from where does this good news flow? Well, it flows from our God, who is rich in mercy and who loves us with his great love. Verse 4. You see, friends, there is no limit to God's love and mercy. It is from God's rich mercy and great love that salvation flows. The Lord our God is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, verse 6. You need only reflect on the character of God and you see his bountiful mercy time and time again. We see it when we look back at God's faithfulness to his people over the course of human history. God was never obligated to rescue Adam and Eve. And yet he demonstrates his mercy in the promise of a Messiah, the one who would defeat sin and death. We see his mercy and love in the face of Israel's faithlessness time and time again throughout the Exodus. At one point, God even contemplates consuming Israel for their wickedness. And yet we see that, that when the deserving verdict would have been death, God gives life. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded 
all the more. And God's plan of salvation flows from that great love. We read in scripture that God is love and you're probably familiar with the passage in John 3.16 where we read that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love is so great that he spared not even his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He called us to himself in love before the foundation of the world. And in his love, he predestined us for adoption. Brothers and sisters, I want to sit here for a moment and think about two ways that God's love and mercy shapes our Christian walk. Firstly, for those of us in Christ, let us remind ourselves of the danger of spiritual pride. Though we now have all the benefits that are afforded to us in Christ, as seen in Ephesians chapter 1, we must take care to remind ourselves, right, that we don't earn or even deserve God's love. There's a particular danger in pride. We see it all throughout Scripture. We are, warmed, we are warned about presuming on the richness and loving kindness of God. And it's a temptation for all of us, especially within the church when particular sins are made public, when a brother or sister confesses something to us, perhaps when we hear someone's theological illiteracy, there's this temptation to look at our own lives, at our own walk, and sit on a, on a pedestal and think, well, my life is pretty great. I've got all the answers, pretty well sanctified. And you know what? My life looks a lot better than the mess of the people's lives sitting in the pews beside me. But friends, I would urge us to reflect on our moral bankruptcy apart from Christ. Paul sets it clearly in verse 5. We were dead in our trespasses. Dead. And by grace we have been saved. This is a sobering truth, is it not? When we're tempted to think more of ourselves than we should, let us look at our own lives. Remind ourselves of who we once were and then look to Christ. Our righteousness is not of our own doing. It is solely of Christ's doing. But for the perfect and intervening grace of, of God, we would have no ground to stand on. As Martin Luther once said, we are all mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. May we reflect on God's great love and mercy in light of our wretched state, as Paul does. How much sweeter does God's grace and mercy then appear to us? Secondly, God's love and tender mercy, it offers us great comfort. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Do you find yourself at times perhaps even questioning God's goodness? We all feel the emotions of loneliness, despair, or perhaps even self-loathing at times. 
We are burdened by the guilt of sin. And Satan loves nothing more than to constantly accuse us of our shortcomings. But we are reminded in these precious verses of God's great love and rich mercy. My friends, I would remind you of the Apostle John's timely word to us in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Isn't that glorious? God's love for us precedes any human response on our part. When we're confronted by the hardships of life and we question God's love for us, my prayer is for you that you would remind yourself of this precious truth. If you are in Christ, God's love for you is sure and steadfast. It doesn't change depending on how the day goes. It doesn't waver or falter. It doesn't depend on your human response or how you're feeling that particular day. No, God's love is the very predication of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ for needy sinners reveals God's love for us. So when the devil lurks and seeks to turn us inward on ourselves, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of this truth. We love him because he first loved us. This is our great comfort. So we've seen that because of God's great love and tender mercy, we are saved by grace and united to Christ. But I want to more fully flush out the second aspect of this reality. We are saved by grace and united to Christ. Look with me at your Bible in, uh, at verse 5, and I'll start from verse 4 so that it doesn't interrupt the flow of the passage. Uh, but pay particular attention to verse 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's look at how we are saved by grace and then move to our union with Christ uh, because union with Christ bleeds over both into verse 6 and 7. Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And this, of course, begs the question, from what are we saved? What does it mean to be saved? Uh, if you're new to the Christian faith or you're exploring this language of being saved might confuse you. As long as you have breath in your lungs, right? You're not, you can't say you're physically dead. But Paul has in view a very different kind of death. A death from which we need a radical resuscitation. We need saving from our sins, from our spiritual death, from what we see in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. We need saving from the curse of sin, from the lingering effects of the fall. And this salvation is only found in Jesus Christ and is itself an act of pure grace on God's part. Now it's important for us to highlight the, the element of grace here in the act of salvation. An analogy of a drowning swimmer might be helpful on this point. 
Think of a drowning swimmer who needs some saving. They're gasping for air. They're searching for a lifeline. Now, when Jesus saves us by grace, Paul doesn't say that Jesus throws us a lifeline and then we're saved. No, Paul lays it out quite clearly. Not only are we actually drowning, but we did in fact drown. We died. We sank to the bottom of the pool. We were helpless and dead. But God, what does he do? He gives us new life. Though we were dead, he saves us by grace. He breathes new breath into our lungs by the power of the Holy Spirit. The vision of Ezekiel paints the picture of new life quite vividly for us. You have these dead, dry bones, lifeless bones. And God breathes new life into these bones by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be made alive in Christ. We move from death to life. Now, how does being united to Christ fit into all of this? Well, I want to draw your attention to the three main verbs of our passage today, which illustrate for us how Christ is the focal point of salvation. The first one, we are made alive together with Christ, verse 5. We are raised up with Christ, verse 6. And the third verb there, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, verse 6. This is a stunning reality for the Christian. When we talk about union with Christ, what we mean is precisely what Paul writes here for us. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that Christ dwells within us and that by his power we are granted both resurrection life and every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus. When Paul says that we are made alive, raised up, seated with Christ, this means that the curse of sin no longer hangs over our heads. We are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Adam was once our federal head, meaning that, that we were born in sin, born in Adam. And yet when God saves us in love, we are no longer under Adam, but under Christ. Christ is our head, and the benefits of God are ours in Christ Jesus. Now this may sound a little abstract, but that's because there is this metaphysical, even transcendent reality to our union with Christ. Theologians marvel at the mystery of this, our union with Christ, because on the one hand, it's impossible to say that we were physically with Christ when he resurrected, uh, sorry, when he died, resurrected, and ascended. But on the other hand, it's, it's not enough to simply say that this is metaphorical. Herman Bovink puts it like this. This realistic, mystical view of Christ's substitution is as such completely correct and is also clearly taught by Scripture. For believers have been crucified with Christ, have died, 
been buried, raised with him, and been made to sit with him in heavenly places. You see, there is this mystical union with Christ that that transcends even our own understanding. Though Adam was once our covenant representative, we now have a better representative, the better Adam, Jesus Christ. And this is to our benefit because we receive every blessing in the heavenly places. This is part of being united to Christ. We are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. We now have the perfect intercessor, the one who appeased the wrath of God on our behalf. The wrath of God and his just judgment created, uh, the, the wrath of God and his just judgment against sin created a chasm that no human being could ever cross. But Christ endured the wrath of God. He suffered the shame and humiliation of death on a cross. And why did he do that? So that he could cross that chasm. So that he could be our representative. So that we share in his death, his resurrection, his ascension. So that in him we are presented to God before the throne room. We are clothed in his righteous robes and we appear as righteous. Though the verdict was one of guilt, because we are now in Christ, because we are united to him, the wrath of God has been satisfied and we are now blameless in him. This is why being united to Christ matters. And we see in verse 7 that we are united to Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, both in this life and in the life to come, the goal of our union with Christ is, in fact, to display God's glory. It's meant to point back to God so that we might marvel at God's glorious display of mercy in our lives, so that others might see the reflection of God's grace and mercy through his work in our lives. And when God calls us home at the end of our lives, it's to demonstrate his love to us. Our future glorification is even about God's glory. Now I want to pivot and talk a little bit about what our union with Christ looks like, what it means for us. What does it look like in our daily pilgrimage as Christians? Well, for that, I want to turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. This is one of the key passages on union with Christ and the benefits of it for us. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. 
but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful reminder of the benefits of our union with Christ. What this means for us is that we are no longer slaves to sin. We were once ruled by the passions of the flesh, but no longer. This is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And no, it doesn't mean that you will now live a sinless life if you're united to Christ. And it doesn't mean that you'll be perfect or that you'll never fall short. But it means that you and I are set free from the bondage of sin. We can pray and ask God to deliver us in the hour of temptation, knowing that we are already free from the dominion of sin in Christ Jesus. Satan's power over us is restrained and shackled. And in that moment when, when the urge to give in to the desires of sin, when it feels overwhelming, when the walls are closing in, pray for deliverance. Ask for what is already promised you in Christ Jesus. And if you stumble, remember you are united to Christ. And because you are united to him, he is your perfect advocate with the Father. He intercedes for you on your behalf. The Christian life is not one of perfect triumphalism. It is one of long-suffering and perseverance. And it is only God's grace that enables us to die to sin and live to Christ. Well, we've seen that because of God's great love and tender mercy, we are saved by grace and united to Christ. We've looked at the depths of God's love, the sobering reality of our fallen nature from which we are saved, and how our union with Christ really transforms the Christian walk. These verses that we've looked at, these precious verses, they, they contain all that is the gospel. The great, uh, the great well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, I think sums it up well. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Though we were once dead, we are given new life. Though we stumbled in darkness, now we walk in the light. May our lives be increasingly conformed into the image of Christ. And may we fuller know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to the depths of your love and mercy. As you are rich in love, Father, would you make us so May the fruits of the Spirit be evident in us. We ask that our lives would be marked with the love of Jesus.
and that we would be the aroma of Christ to a dying world so that they might come to know you. We pray these things in the sweet and abiding name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.